0: Welcome to Making Connections, a WMMT series on diversifying our future.
1: Welcome to the Making Connections News edition of Mountain Talk. I'm your host, Mimi Pickering. In this series, we share stories about opportunities and challenges for diversifying Appalachia's economy and renewing our communities. One of the things we've learned in this storytelling venture is that it will be very difficult to revive our economy if the state of Kentucky is not providing the basic investments we need in education, health, social services, and infrastructure. So in this episode, we're doing a deep dive into Kentucky's budget and revenue options as the Governor and General Assembly plan for the next two years. Well, why should we bother ourselves with these details? Well, here at home, we are concerned when our school kids have to share textbooks, textbooks that are already out of date. We're upset when the local daycare closes and parents are forced to scramble to find a safe place for their kids. We worry about that bridge that is clearly in disrepair and wonder why it hasn't been fixed. But what we might not do is connect these realities in our communities to the actions our legislators take in Frankfurt. Our reporting comes from the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy's annual conference held January 31, 2020 in Lexington, Kentucky. The conference was titled, What Does Kentucky Value?, and began with the notion that the Kentucky state budget is the primary policy document of the Commonwealth and thus should reflect our priorities and shared values. First up, we'll hear from Jason Bailey, Executive Director of the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy. He's followed by Ashley Spaulding and Pam Thomas from the KSEP staff. We will end with comments from the keynote address by Dr. Jared Bernstein, economist and senior fellow at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities.
2: The budget, the state budget, uh, is Kentucky's most important policy document. And it is, as is often stated, an expression of our values. So the question, when we look at the budget context over the last decade or so, and then look forward into the session this year, is what does Kentucky value? And that's really the key question and the theme that we're going to tease out uh, throughout the day of the conference. So we're going to launch into the budget now, and uh, first we're going to hear from our research director, Ashley Spalding, who's going to go over uh, what's been happening in the budget uh, in the last decade or so. What's the context leading up to this, this legislative session? What are the key issues and questions on the spending side uh, that we, we will be addressing and need to address as a state? And then we will hear from our senior fellow, Pam Thomas, who will um, talk about the other side of the ledger, the revenue side, the resources. That we put the budget together. What are the issues? Uh, are there what What our tax policy has to do with where we stand today and the choices in front of us? And then finally, I'm going to talk a little bit about Governor Bashir's budget that was put out this week um, and what that might mean for the debate uh, moving forward. So, without further ado, I will hand it over to Ashley.
0: Um, more than a decade of disinvestment in most areas of the budget have led to less funding in critical areas, including. Uh, our education in all areas and also in uh, vital human services and these trends have important implications for our state's future in terms of economic success health and well-being education is the largest portion of the budget and it's one of the most important investments that a state can make yet Kentucky has been cutting all aspects of public education Um, and and these have been significant cuts funding for K through 12 education through the seek formula support education excellence in Kentucky um, has been declining Um, including in the last budget despite what you may have heard Um, one of the ways of talking about these cuts is that total seek dollars per pupil um, have been declining in inflation adjusted terms by 13% between 2008 and 2019, when inflation is taken, uh, I mentioned that uh, ranking as fourth worst among states. Another issue that often comes up is the uh, what is called the base per pupil guarantee that you, you hear a lot about. That's a portion of SEEK that gets a lot of focus, and it was at its highest in the last biennium at $4,000 per pupil. And a lot was, was made at this, you know, it's historic levels. However, we've really been working to, to point out that these are state and local dollars. And if, if you look at the, at the slide and, and, and think about this, um, the state portion of the per-cubile guarantee has been declining, and the local portion has been going up. adjusted for inflation, this is a 22% cut since 2008. So we say these are not historic levels, uh, historically high levels, these are historic levels of cuts to the base per pupil guarantee. An additional part of SEEK, an important part of the budget, is the the cost of transporting students to and from school. And the state, uh, by law, must provide 100% of what are considered to be the, the estimated qualifying costs of this. But since 2005, the state has not been putting in their portion. And so it has fallen on the local school districts to come up with those funds because our kids still need to be transported to informed school schools. Um, and so in 2019, just 66% of these costs were covered by the state. And this is putting a lot of pressure on local school districts. Primary and secondary education programs not funded through SEEK uh, have also been cut. In the last budget, zero funding for instructional materials and textbooks. Zero funding for teacher professional development. Important programs like extended school services, which includes after school, Um, that program was cut as well. And there was a bump in the last budget to the the critical program, uh, Family Resource and Youth Services Centers, or Friskies. Um, But when you adjust for inflation, you look back to 2008, that's still a 15% cut. Um, So that was an important bump, but um, in the scheme of things, we're still underfunding. These cuts are putting incredible pressure on our local school districts to either come up with the funds to cover um, these important um, services and salaries, or to make cuts to staff and make cuts to programs, or to do a combination of both. And a couple of years ago, we surveyed local school districts, we surveyed superintendents, and we asked them what the impacts of cuts and funding freezes have been um, since 2008, and and we asked them 2008 to 2017. And what we learned is that these cuts are having really harmful impacts on our kids in classrooms. And um, here are some of the ways highlighted districts are offering, are providing fewer instructional days, They've reduced student support such as after school, summer school and intervention programs. Art and music programs have been uh, reduced or eliminated. Uh, Reduced special education services, career and technical education, health services spending. Districts have begun to charge uh, instructional fees and extracurricular fees, or if they already had those fees, then they're increasing them to to try to to cover costs. Um, Districts have also reduced staff, Uh, been unable to give needed raises and more and many districts are overwhelmed by the uh, school facilities needs that they're facing And funding inequities are worsening as the funding gap between the poorest and the wealthiest school districts is growing and we're just past the 30th anniversary of the rose decision that resulted in the Kentucky Education Reform Act or CARA that Kentucky's known for to, to create equity funding equity in education And advocacy and this graph shows we're nearly back to pre-care levels uh, in terms of our funding gap and this happens because as there's increased pressures on local school districts to come up with the funds at the because of the state budget cuts that the poorest communities are disadvantaged because even if they uh, raise property taxes the same amount as a wealthier district it's not going to result in the same amount of, of revenue And Kentucky has lost ground on academic achievement measures um, in recent years as well. Our investments in early childhood education are also underfunded. Our uh, child care assistance program remains inadequate and um, our preschool funding uh, isn't enough either. And and part of that is the state only funds um, half-day preschool. They don't fund a full-day program even though research shows that a full day preschool program has really important um, payoffs in terms of how well kids do in kindergarten and beyond. And so, at the same time that that our state does not fund full day preschool, um, so we see just 40% of districts are then able to provide a full day program. And amidst all of this, preschool was cut in the last budget. These cuts make it hard for the state to reach its educational goals as investments in education are just so critical. Um, Not just for education specifically, but beyond um, to the health of our citizens and to our economy. Um, Yet, we're also seeing cuts to the state's higher education system uh, which is making college unaffordable for many. State budget cuts to Kentucky's universities and community colleges over uh, more than a decade have meant these schools are raising tuition in order to make up for some of these cuts. Certainly even the, these tuition hikes that we've seen aren't covering all of it. The cost of higher ed in Kentucky has been shifting dramatically from the state and on to students. Compared to before the Great Recession, um, Kentucky's public universities and community colleges have actually been um, cut by they're receiving 35% less from the state in inflation-adjusted terms and as a result they have reduced faculty and staff they've cut programs and they have reduced critical student supports also amidst these funding cuts we've seen a shift of funds to a performance funding pool and that's where these funds are distributed based on metrics such as degree completion And this has resulted in several institutions receiving no performance funds and those include uh, Kentucky State University, which is of course Kentucky's historically black public university, and institutions in the eastern part of the state, including Morehead State University and community college campuses that aren't in this particular table um, in that area. And this is where students are really um, maybe facing some of the greatest uh, financial barriers to, to completing college. According to a report by the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, Kentucky ranks 8th worst for college affordability. And the cost of higher education as a share of income is especially high for black and Hispanic Kentucky families due to historic structural barriers to employment, income, and wealth distribution and wealth accumulation. Also, state need-based financial aid just hasn't kept up with the cost of college. And some students don't receive the scholarship even when they qualify because the state runs out of funds. In response to worsening college affordability in Kentucky, student debt has also been on the rise. Turning to Medicaid, which is the um, second largest general fund appropriation, it makes up approximately one in six general fund dollars. When we talk about Medicaid, one of the most important things to talk about is the expansion of Medicaid in 2014. And the federal government paid all of the costs of that for the first three years, and then after that it's been um, edging up to where uh, later this calendar year it'll move to the state paying 10%, and it won't move past that. And so going forward, the federal government pays 90 cents for every dime the state puts in for the Medicaid expansion which is part of why we always refer to it, you've probably heard us refer to it, as a great deal for Kentucky. Um, It it really is. Uh, It's Also a great deal because this investment creates long-term dividends in our economy uh, and well-being as a state, and I'm gonna talk some more about that. But first I wanna note that we're actually seeing a decline in the number of people uh, receiving Medicaid in Kentucky. And, and we need to be thinking about that when we talk about the budget. And on the one hand, um, Kentucky's economy has improved somewhat, but the kind of drop that we're talking about here, uh, the decline is not explained by this very modest economic growth. And that really needs to be examined, um, what, what is happening there. I want to say a bit more about why the investment in Medicaid expansion is, is so important. It's helped Kentucky to reduce the share of people who do not have insurance coverage. And our, our state is already seeing health improvements. We have so many more people who are able to access substance use disorder treatment, and uh, the likelihood of, of getting um, of dying from colon cancer has, has gone down in our state. But these are inc- incredible outcomes from the Medicaid expansion. It's also made an important impact on health equity as well. We've seen the insurance gap between black and white Kentuckians narrow. And the state has experienced job growth in health-related sectors and economic benefits at rural hospitals as well. Kentucky's human services needs are deeply underfunded. Uh, These supports promote economic security and well-being and, and good health across the commonwealth when they're adequately funded. Waiting lists are long. For Kentucky and need care at home and their community through special programs such as the acquired brain injury long-term care program but as you can see in this table there are significant waiting lists and Kentucky social workers are still in crisis as the number of children in the foster care system as you can see in this graph um, continues to rise it's driven in part by untreated substance use disorders in our state The best practice caseload for child welfare workers is 15 to 18 workers. And in Kentucky, our average is 30. Um, And and in some counties, it is far higher. The Department for Aging and Independent Living has been cut again and again, even as our older population is growing and is projected to continue to grow. So we see waiting lists for programs like Meals on Wheels and, and other ways that these cuts are damaging. And as a state, we're disinvesting in public health at a time when we need to be ready to handle infectious disease outbreaks like flu, hepatitis A, uh, and C, and HIV, and other public health threats. Public service announcement to wash your (laughs) hands because (laughs) the state is planning to to, um, deal with these um, cuts and these increased pension payments Um, to move forward with a plan to um, have local health departments only do the the minimum statutorily um, required um, services and as part of that to to have a layoff of 600 positions. Um, Meanwhile, Kentucky's criminal justice costs rise as incarceration continues to grow even as crime has been declining, contributing to the squeezing of other areas of the budget. And rather than enacting meaningful reforms in recent years, our state has doubled down on incarceration. Passing bills that just worsen the situation create new crimes and increase sentences. In 2017, Kentucky's prison population, and this includes um, individuals in state custody who are housed in county jails, um, it was estimated to grow by 19% over the next decade at a cost of $600 million. And since then, the General Assembly has passed laws that worsen the situation, so that um, projection would be much higher. In this graph, you'll see that um, in 2019, for the for the year, um, it was a total. Um, it was almost at uh, 24,000 people incarcerated for a felony uh, in our state, and we are now over 24,000 and um, expected to to continue to grow. This isn't making it safer and the short and long-term harmful impacts of mass incarceration on the health and well-being of our citizens and communities is devastating. At the same time, the corrections budget is growing, the entire state justice system continues to operate under severely depleted budgets, including our Department of Public Advocacy, uh, which still faces too high caseloads, even with an increase in funding in the last budget. In terms of pensions, um, on our website, anytime Jason uses the word actuarial, we get a ton of web hits. So I need to, like, <laughs> need to make sure to use some of the talk about pensions, um, but also because it's uh, uh, retirement security is so important and um, we, this is such a, a big part of the budget. Um, in terms of pensions, the last budget saw a massive increase in state contributions, especially for the Kentucky Retirement system, uh, the KRS state plans. These increases were largely uh, due to sudden growth and investment return assumptions uh, that were made by the KRS board that are among the most cautious in the country um, related to payroll growth and and investment returns. Along with small increases in the contribution to the teachers retirement system, the state paid approximately $540 million more uh, for these state plans in 2019 than in 2018 and then continued that investment level pretty much um, into 20 in 2020 in addition to all of this we've cut the Department of Energy Environment at a time when water quality is such a concern in many of our communities and um, other agencies that have experienced round after round of cuts are our Secretary of State and that impacts Kentucky's ability to protect consumers oversee fair elections and monitor how public dollars are spent KET has been cut again and again, as has the Commission for Children with Special Health Care Needs, the Commission on Women received no funding in the last budget, and our state workers' salaries have remained stagnant for over a decade. So before we hear from Jason Bailey about how the governor is proposing to address um, this long list of budget challenges, let's hear from Pam Thomas about the revenue that we'll have to make improvements. Good morning, everybody. And uh, I'm here to continue with this
3: cheery news. Uh, My half is the revenue half, and we'll help to explain, in part, why we are in such dire straits with the budget half. This is the revenue picture for the upcoming biennium, and it's anything but rosy. The graph shows the actual revenue received in the past and projected revenues for the current year and the upcoming biennium, and as you can see, those numbers are not large. Estimates from the consensus forecasting group for the current year and the upcoming biennium project growth of just 1.3% in 2021 and 1.8% in 2022, and if you look at that, you can see that those numbers really just are not very impressive. And as an indicator of how lackluster the revenue projections are, the estimates for the upcoming biennium represent the lowest level of biennial growth since the consensus forecasting initiative began in 1996. The very slow projected growth is largely due to the tax cuts enacted in 2018 and 2019, which primarily benefited the wealthy, and I'll talk a bit more about this later. But the receipts from the individual and corporate income taxes and the cigarette tax are all expected to decline over the biennium, and the bump that we got from the sales tax increases is expected to level off. Balancing our budget isn't going to get any easier without major structural revenue changes, and our future looks even worse, which is what this graph shows. In short, revenue consistently fails to meet budgeted needs because of tax policy choices that fail to consider long-term consequences. Because of the legislature's regular passage of new tax breaks and the growing impact of existing tax exemptions, our revenues are actually eroding relative to the size of our economy. Our general fund as a share of total personal income has been shrinking and it will continue to shrink as this shows through 2022. And if you look there on the far end where the dotted blue line is, it would seem like going from 5.9% to 5.6% doesn't look like much, but in an economy of $214 million, that is roughly $706 million that we're not gonna to have to spend just because of the continued erosion when compared to the size of our economy. If this is a long-term downward trend. The high point in 1991 reflects tax reform enacted as a result of the Kentucky Education Reform Act, of CARA. And as you may remember back then, the court basically told the legislature that you need to adequately fund edu- uh, education, and so they raised a lot of revenue then. If, we, if our revenues had maintained at that same level as a share of our economy, we currently would have 3.1 billion more dollars to spend. In addition to the very modest revenue projections for the upcoming biennium, the General Assembly faces other issues with revenue. Kentucky has a large and growing structural deficit. A structural deficit is essentially when you spend more money than you take in. We spend more than we we have to invest during a fiscal year. And because of this, to balance the budget, other revenue sources besides the general fund have to be found. One way the budget has been balanced over the past several years has been transferring funds from restricted accounts that are required by statute to be used for other purposes. The largest transfers over the past few years have been from the Public Employee Health Insurance Trust Fund, and this is the fund where payments by employees and employers are deposited to help pay the cost of health care for state government employees. And during the current budget, the legislature also transferred $75 million in each year from the newly created Permanent Pension Fund to the general fund. Many of the funds used to balance our current budget have been swept for many years, and the governor has proposed sweeping some of these same funds, but he didn't include the Public Employee uh, Health Trust Fund. In addition to the fund transfers, the General Assembly also used something called lapses to bring more money into the general fund. Lapses include the return of money appropriated to the legislative and judicial branches. So, in other words, the General Assembly appropriates money to them, and then says, "Oh, but you can't spend it all. You've got to send some of it back to the executive branch to use." Um, so, essentially, although the budget is balanced for those uh, agency or those parts of government, it really isn't because they have to send some money back. And so, the impact is that they can't spend up to their full appropriated amount. To simply get back to zero for 2021. After using all of the $146 million in new revenues from the CFG production, the General Assembly will need to find an additional $180 million someplace else. And if they hope to address routine cost increases, new agency budget needs, required increased pension contributions, and other necessary expenses, even more revenues will need to be found. Is this a problem that other states are facing? For the most part, no, it's not. Most states have returned to more stable footing since stumbling during their session, but not Kentucky, and in fact, we were recognized by Pew for the third time in uh, three years as one of only ten states that haven't made progress, so that isn't really a recognition that we appreciate or that is good for us, but it's happened. One other way that I want to just mention briefly that the General Assembly or uh, the government balances the budget is through the use of necessary government expenses, or NGEs. And they're interesting because they allow the expenditure of money, but it doesn't appear in the bottom line of the budget. So they essentially create a situation where an enacted budget that appears to be balanced actually isn't because the authorized expenditures typically without any specific dollar amount like an appropriation would have for specific expenditures. And two of the areas where they have traditionally used this are corrections overruns and uh, guardian ad litem fees, which are people that represent kids in court. And even though they know that those expenditures are going to happen, they allow the increases to happen as NGEs. During the last budget, more funds were actually appropriated in in the areas that have traditionally been NGEs, but they still comprise corrections and guardian atleti still comprise the largest part of that. And the governor has proposed additional appropriations in the current year to address some of the anticipated NGEs uh, proactively. And then finally, uh, the last sort of piece of evidence that relates to where we are fiscally as a commonwealth is our rainy day fund. And the lack of resources means that because there simply aren't enough revenues and because we've used band-aid and one-time short-term fixes to balance the budget, our budget reserve trust fund, which is also referred to as the rainy day fund, has suffered. The purpose of this fund is to have resources on hand uh, for unanticipated expenses and to provide funds if receipts come up short, particularly in the case of a recession. States typically save money during economic expansion, so resources are available for recessions, and the targeted amount of the rainy day fund balance in Kentucky is a minimum of 5% of the general fund, and as you can see, we haven't been anywhere near that for quite a few years. Credit rating agencies use the balance in these types of funds in analyzing fiscal health of states, which they use to determine bond ratings. States that are less fiscally healthy have to pay higher interest rates, so it costs them more to borrow money, and this is the case in Kentucky. At the end of 2018, Kentucky was only one of only a handful of states that had not significantly increased rainy day fund savings, and since then, some additional deposits have been made, as illustrated by the graph. So we are better off than we were, but if a recession happens during the next biennium, we'll have a hard time with the resources necessary to meet our needs. So why don't we have the money that we need in the Commonwealth? We don't have what we need because of year after year, of new tax breaks, and this problem will only get worse as we shift reliance from income taxes to sales taxes, like has happened in the last two sessions. Every other year the Office of State Budget Director publishes a tax expenditure analysis and you can find that online if you're interested in looking at it. It helps explain Kentucky's growing revenue hole, and the analysis for the upcoming biennium biennium estimates an $8.2 billion in tax expenditures for 2021. But they've changed kind of the way that they've done this report in the last several years so that there are actually a lot of expenditures that no longer get reported as being tax expenditures um, and so the number, the actual number, is higher than that. And in comparison, revenues projected for 2021 are $11.7 billion. so even with not all of the expenditures included, we give away almost as much as we take in. And this slide illustrates just a few of the business tax breaks they enacted over the past few years. And notice that, just the past few years mainly, the 18 and 19 session alone. Yes, there were some base expansions and loophole closings to offset the revenue losses from these added tax breaks, but as mentioned previously, because we shifted from our best performing taxes to consumption taxes that simply don't grow with our economy, new revenues from the expansions and loophole closings are projected to be all gone by 2024, or almost all gone, leaving us worse off than we were. This is just one example, and I think that this is a good one to use here because so many people are... um, kind of focused on and think about the very large retirement exemption that Kentucky has. And I wanted to bring this up because it's an example of how tax breaks, even when the legislature doesn't do anything, can grow over time. Once they're on the books, they can, once a tax break is on on the books, they continue to grow and there's no system that requires them to be reconsidered or reviewed the way, same way an appropriation would have to be for the budget. The retirement income exclusion is very popular and it would be politically difficult to repeal, will end up We'll end up a larger and larger share of our income tax base as our population ages, more people retire, and a greater share of our income tax base comes from retirement income. So the, the, the exemption was first created, but it, it existed for state employees pretty much ever since the state retirement um, income, or state retirement system existed. And in 1995, the legislature expanded it to all retirement income. And so it's not just pensions. It's also 401ks and any kind of retirement income that people receive. And they set that level at $35,000. And there was an escalator in the bill that took the amount up every year. And the amount grew to $41,110 by 2007 when the General Assembly stopped the escalator. And then uh, in the 18th session, they reduced it back to 31110, but the exemption still remains one of the most generous in the United States. And as our population ages, with no additional action by the General Assembly, the impact of the exemption will grow. And, and, and this is just going to continue, and you can see that it has continued, and it, and it is going to impact our, our base going forward to a greater and greater extent. This exclusion applies to all retirement income, as I mentioned previously, regardless of the overall income of the recipient. so everybody gets it, uh, whether your retirement income is your only income or it's just a very small drop in the bucket for you. One option to offset growing negative impact that might be more politically feasible than a complete repeal would be to phase it out for those with higher incomes. Now real briefly, I wanna to shift to the uh, what happened in uh, 2018. Uh, this is going to be just a very brief, high-level overview of the 2018 and 19 tax changes and their impact on our overall outlook. The 2018 bill raised 192 million in temporary revenues, and I'll just elaborate on that a little more later. The most costly changes were reductions in the top income tax rate for individuals and corporations from 6% to 5%. These changes disproportionately benefit the wealthy and corporations, and a majority of the new revenues raised and broadening the sales tax base and increasing the cigarette tax rates were used to pay for those cuts. Income tax cuts are really expensive. The original bill was vetoed by the governor, but the General Assembly overrode the veto and then passed a new bill in one day that included all of the provisions in the former bill, as well as some new tax expenditures and uh, breaks that no one really got to see, got to comment on, or anything else. There was no opportunity for citizen input, comment, or any. And now for the distributional impact of the changes I just talked about. What this graph shows is on the left, you go from, uh, these are income, income bands, from the left to the right, lower income to higher income. And our tax system has been upside down, asking more of those who have less for many years. And the 2018 tax changes made the upside downness even worse than it was. This slide shows the impact of the tax changes by Income Tax Group, and as you can see, The least were impacted the most, while those with the most received the biggest benefit. And due to historical structural barriers that have resulted in low incomes for people of color in Kentucky, our upside-down tax system actually exacerbates income inequality. In other words, black and Hispanic and Latino Kentuckians tend to pay higher effective tax rates than white Kentuckians when we fail to ask a fair share of the most affluent of our state, but ask more more moderate-income folks. And this is also true when you look at the gap between poor rural communities and more affluent suburban communities. And then, so 2018 was an out-of-banner year for revenues in Kentucky. And then came 2019, a session which featured a whole new round of tax cuts and exemptions, primarily for corporations and wealthy individuals, further eroding our already small tax base. A bill that started out as making technical changes, and you may remember how hastily that bill was passed in the last session. Well, when you do things that quick, you need to fix things up. You make a lot of mistakes. Uh, That bill grew into this very costly behemoth that will only grow over time. The biggest beneficiaries in 2019 were by far the banks. They're going to get a 50% tax cut. Estimated, even though they were experiencing record profits and still are and were among like the biggest beneficiaries of the large federal tax cuts. And the process that was used to pass this legislation, which should have been publicly discussed, carefully reviewed, with input from those on all sides, was not in any way public. There was never a committee hearing because the changes were added in a free conference committee, and the details of the proposal were not even available to the legislators who voted to approve it at, in writing at the time they did that. A bill coming out of free conference can't be changed by either chamber. It's either an up or a down vote. It can only be voted up or down. They can't do anything after that, and they were in the very last days of the session. Do you see a pattern emerging here? <laughs> And so this graph came from actually a presentation by the Office of the State Budget Director to the Consensus Forecasting Group as they were developing the estimates for our upcoming session. And it illustrates what I just said, that most of the new revenues generated by the 2018 and 19 changes will be gone by 2024. And that was last year considered by the Consensus Forecasting Group, so if this went out one more year, I believe what we would see is there would be no revenues. The claims supporting the shift from income tax, you guys probably remember this if you follow it, to the consumption taxes are that if we reduce taxes for businesses and the wealthy, that they will invest more in the commonwealth, that more people will be hired, that we will have a lot more jobs that pay higher wages, and that's called trickle down, right? Yeah, so anyway, as you all also probably know, that hasn't really worked anywhere. And we've talked in the past about Kansas, North Carolina, Ohio, Louisiana as places that have tried this and it hasn't worked. Well, now we can actually add Kentucky to the list. And so if somebody asks you, you can say, well, it hasn't worked right here in Kentucky. So we are now on the list of places that have tried this and it clearly hasn't worked. why is, why is the revenues mostly gone? There are two reasons. One is the addition of the tax breaks, but the other is that we've traded revenues from our most productive tax to revenues from consumption taxes, which simply don't grow with our economy. The far left bars are individual income tax, and this graph illustrates growth from 2010 to 2018 before the tax changes. And the 2018 trade-off moved us away from this tax that is more steady and, and grows with our economy, to relying on the sales tax and the cigarette tax, which are those next two bars. And you can pretty easily see that if you're going to make a shift like that over the long term, it's not going to bode very well for you. To further emphasize the upside down impact of moving from income taxes to sales tax, this slide illustrates the impact of the sales tax overall based on the same income groups we had before. And generally speaking, uh, sales taxes are regressive because people that have income at the bottom levels have to spend more of their money just to survive, whereas people who have more resources, when they get more money, they might buy more expensive things, but it, it's not going to be proportionate to the, to the resources they have. The last slide focused specifically on the sales tax, and this shows our all, overall average state and local tax burden as a share of family income by income group after the changes in 2018. And what this shows is that people at the bottom end bear more of the burden than people at the top end. And take a moment to notice the stark difference between these two groups. The average income of people in the lowest 20% is $10,000, while the average income of the top 1% is $935,000. So that's a pretty stark difference. Now I want to shift gears just a little bit and talk about the economy. It's also important to look at all of the pieces and parts of Kentucky when we consider just how booming our economy really is. And what this map shows is there are still parts of our state that are struggling mightily. It's true that we do have a historically low unemployment rate, but the overall state rate just simply does not tell the whole story. Higher wages and more people working mean more general fund revenues, and in Kentucky, more people are working, but wages are not increasing, which dampens revenue growth. In 2018, the median hourly wage for Kentuckians was $17.09, which is about $13,000 less than a single parent with one child would need to meet a basic budget. Adjusted for inflation, the median wage in Kentucky in 2001 was $17.19. So back that up, right? In 2018, it was $1,709, and in 2001, it was $1,719. So... It means that over the past almost 20 years, median wages in Kentucky have not improved at all. And despite low unemployment rates, we're still 29,000 jobs behind where we were in December of 2007. And employment losses are concentrated especially in the eastern part of the state. And the pace of job growth in Kentucky is slow. Kentucky has added a net of 13,600 non-farm jobs in 2019, a similar modest pace comparable to the previous three years, but slower than job growth experienced earlier in the recovery, is illustrated by this graph. Our job growth remains weaker than both the region and our nation. Unlike other states, our unemployment rate has not moved for the last two years, holding steady at 4.3%, and at the same time, the U.S. rate has fallen to 3.5%, and the rate in the South has fallen to 3.4%. What this means is that the pace of job growth in Kentucky has not been strong enough to exceed population growth, job losses, and people entering the labor force. And it isn't really clear why Kentucky's job growth is lagging, but what is clear is that the promised job growth from the enactment of right to work and the shift of who pays taxes has not materialized. And this is is the evidence right here, folks. It's, It's just not happening. Slow job growth and the uneven nature of recovery in Kentucky means that there are many communities that need jobs that have been left out, and the failure of wages to increase means the labor markets aren't tight enough to create pressure for rising wages. And these things also directly impact the ability of the state to generate revenue and result in those very moderate growth numbers that I showed at the beginning. And so that's where I started, and now I've come back full circle. Uh, and now I'm going to turn it over to Jason. So Governor
2: Bashir released his budget proposal on Tuesday night uh, with his... Uh, his speech and uh, by April 15th we have to have a new state budget so it's going to be fast and curious for a few months here. reminder that his budget is a recommendation that is his uh, what he would uh, prefer to see It is not uh, the governor can veto a budget but the, the general assembly can override um, his veto with a simple majority. The governor doesn't have a, a a lot of authority here but I think it's important to understand what the governor put out because it does set down some markers for the debate um, as the recently elected governor. Any changes that are made in the process that harm, uh, harm parts of the budget that he had proposed to help uh, will get attention, obviously, and a reaction. So it's important to understand as we move forward. I think at a really high level, if you look at this budget, what the governor proposed is a stop the cuts budget. So we have gone over these cuts that have been in, in, you know, enacted in, in recent years. Uh, the 20 rounds of budget cuts we've had since 2008. And what he is really proposing, to the extent possible, a budget that stops the reductions. It is not, however, the, the resources are simply not here in this budget to do a, what I would call, a turn the corner budget, which is to a reinvestment budget. A budget that really sit, puts the kind of dollars on the table to many of these services that would um, begin to change the trajectory in a real way and and make up ground that we have lost. The resources just aren't there in this budget. So I think at the highest level, um, what he did was spread out the resources he had available across the budget in a way that prevents, for the most part, absolute cuts or reductions that we've been used to and makes modest and targeted increases in certain areas, uh, but, but in most cases, it is not enough, as you'll see, to, to stop the continued erosion once you take inflation into account of their spending areas. So you're going to hear the number 1%, a number of times with 1% more um, in a few places. And just keep in mind, inflation over these two years is projected to run about 2.5%. So 1% would not actually be enough to keep up with inflation. So what does he do? There were some have-tos in this budget, corrections, Medicaid, uh, health insurance, other things that had to be done. What did the governor choose to do with the resources he had? Um, this is one way of looking at it. Where did the dollars go in, 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 in basic order of priority? And you can see that teacher raise um, was in, in essence uh, the top priority, it, it ranks in number one. This support of the pensions of these quasi-governmental organizations is really the second at about $50 million um the, the small increase for seek uh k-12 is, is third and you see the social workers coming in and then the one percent raise for state employees so again these aren't big amounts of money um but we're spread out and it will be interesting to compare this table to what the house and the senate will propose in their budget which of these get reduced and what goes up uh, once they look at it will be a, a really telling part as you might guess, um, you know, this budget's not been met with great acclamation by the uh, legislative majority. They will certainly have their own approach to the budget. Um, but they will have to grapple with the priorities that the governor laid out, as I said earlier, and, and describe why what they want to propose to do is better than what the governor wants to do. The first and, and you know, I think the biggest question is, will there be revenue? The governor proposed at least some revenue. It's part of how you make the things possible. Um, but uh, you know which of those things will be agreed to or or what revenue options if any does the legislature come up with and if so from where and how much is a big question and if there's not revenue uh, where will there be cuts Uh, and how will the public react if more cuts are put on the table we two years ago uh, there was a lot of conversation in the state about cuts and a lot of you can remember that there were big protests How will people react if cuts are on the table this time? If money doesn't go to certain things that um, are being proposed. And on the revenue question, I think the question is not just will there be revenue generated, but will there be tax cuts, tax credits that Pam talks about? There has been every legislative session. So will we end up at the end of the General Assembly with less money than we have today? That seems like given all this information that that wouldn't be uh, prudent, Uh, But it's happened, and I think we should fully um, be, be aware and concerned that it could happen again. And if so, what are the implications for the budget? So those are some of the questions we have.
1: You just heard conference presentations from Jason Bailey, Executive Director of the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy, and before that from Pam Thomas, Senior Fellow, and Ashley Spalding, Research Director at KSEP. We conclude this show with selections from the keynote address by Dr. Jared Bernstein. Bernstein is a senior fellow at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities and has worked at the White House and Labor Department under Democrat administrations. So I'm
4: an economist, and when I talk about the economic landscape, uh, I can get both a little nerdy and a little excited uh, because I think there's some very positive things happening here. Uh, This may seem like a difficult time to be talking about um, you know, positive developments uh, in the economy, but at least in terms of what we've learned about how economies work over the last 10 years, uh, there's been some very important advances. So one of the things we've learned is that the unemployment rate can fall a lot lower than most economists thought without triggering inflation. Now, this may sound obscure or have distant and maybe uncomfortable memories of Econ 101, but the idea among economists forever, and I'm not just talking about... Um, you know, academics, I'm talking about people who made policy, people who pulled the levers that determined outcomes in the overall or macro economy, uh, was that if the unemployment rate got too low, inflation would take off and uh, you'd pay a very steep price in terms of accelerating inflation for having such low unemployment. Now, again, that may sound sort of abstract, but what it meant in practice was the unemployment rate was never allowed to get low enough to give working people the kinds of opportunities they need. Someone with less than a college education, especially someone with a high school education or less, if you're someone who's a victim of racial discrimination or immigration discrimination, you depend on a very low unemployment rate. And because of this misguided notion that I'm describing, uh, the, fiscal, uh, the monetary authorities, the central bank, never let the unemployment rate get low enough. And the reason was because they were convinced that inflation would start to spiral. Well, over a year, for about two years, the unemployment rate has been in a territory where the authorities would have told us years ago, can't go there. Unemployment's too low. It's going to jack up inflation and shut down the whole game. Inflation's not done squat. Inflation's just ticking along. In fact, we learned this morning that inflation over the last year was 1.6% of this particular inflation gauge. The point is that we can sustain much lower unemployment rate than was commonly thought and economist's. Even mainstream economists now recognize this, and that's, that's very, very important to our work and to the people that we're trying to help because it will create more opportunities in the job markets. And in fact, there are, more, uh, more, there, there are a lot more jobs uh, in, uh, in, in the job market these days than many people thought would be the case. And while there are, of course, pockets, including, uh, I'll, I'll show you, uh, pockets here in Kentucky where people don't have enough work, I think, at least at a national level, I can say, I don't think we have as much a job quantity problem as a job quality problem. And there, somebody said to me the other day, gee, Jared, is it even possible that we could have good jobs, good quality jobs for you know, non-college educated workers, or do we just have to write them off? Well, of course, my answer is absolutely not in a million years write them off. Uh, there is a fourfold path to decent quality jobs. Full employment is key. By the way, Dr. King, whose birthday it was the other day, I always think of this on his birthday. He got this, and, and back in the you know the, the March on Washington, uh, that uh, uh, where Dr. King gave his famous uh, Dream speech, was actually called the March on Washington for Full Employment and Civil Rights. Full employment was in the title. This is a placard that uh, was passed around that people carried that day. And I just love this equation. Civil rights, which is what Dr. King was fighting for, a fight that obviously goes on today, plus full employment equals freedom. So full employment was recognized as a key part of the solution to uh, uh, the problem that we're uh, faced in terms of uh, improving the quality of jobs because full employment gives lower wage workers more bargaining power. But it doesn't give them enough bargaining power. For that, they need uh, collective bargaining power. And here we face challenges like right to work, or I call it right to work for less. Labor standards, work supports, also a critical component of, of changing our job quantity uh, uh, surplus into a job quality surplus. Uh, this includes raising minimum wages, improving overtime rules so that people with higher salaries uh, get overtime automatic, uh, automatically, um, Trying to do something about this arm's length problem with gig work, the idea that you're misclassifying actual regular W 2 employees as independent contractors and providing them with fewer labor protections. Uh, that's another key labor standard. And then get, this gets to a lot of the work at the Center on Budget um, to flesh, to fill out the gap between what jobs provide and what people need to make ends meet. There needs to be a robust set of work supports, including nutritional or SNAP supports, housing supports, childcare, refundable credits. And I think we've had a fair bit of success in promoting these work supports, in no small part because they're connected to work and that becomes a a political advantage. So I uh, uh, absolutely believe that it is possible to create um, quality jobs to match our quantity of jobs. Okay, a few other lessons that, that sort of flesh out the economic landscape. You know what works? This is something else we learned in the last decade, progressive health care reform. That is an achievement that uh, uh, I think was eluding uh, progressives for many years, and I'm not saying that the Affordable Care Act is perfect, uh, but it has uh, dramatically reduced the share of people without insurance coverage, and it's helped to reduce uh, the the uh, growth in healthcare spending to help us get more in sync with uh, the rest of the world, although there's a lot more work to do there. But the economic landscape uh, is now flush with this recognition that progressive healthcare reform is a possibility, and you know what doesn't work? Trickle down tax cuts. Well, this is a lesson relearned. I I am continually um, uh, reminded of how correct uh, all of us were when we talked about what would happen if we engaged in yet another round of uh, you know, supply-side or trickle-down tax cuts. I'm talking about the 2017 version now, and uh, the same thing is happening at the state level. I just want to say a couple of things about um, inequality in the, in the political landscape, and here I want to talk about Kentucky a little bit and I'm going to steal some KCEP slides. Um, so I am one of these punditry commentators on the economy, people call me up and say, Jared, how's the economy doing? I always say, whose economy are you talking about? I didn't have to say that 20 or 30 years ago because we didn't have as much inequality. But now that we have so much inequality, you have to ask whose economy are you talking about? And we have more and more regional differences within our economy, so there's an increase in regional inequality. And within regions, we have increasing differences between urban and rural outcomes. And here is where the Kentucky case is so important. You know, as I started preparing for my talk, and I did say, uh, this is where Jason helped to educate me, I said, you know, I hate to say it, but some of your indicators are looking kind of soggy relative to the rest of the country. And why is that? And I'll, I'll get to that. But the point is that if you look at job growth in Kentucky over the past year, uh, it is half what it, uh, it, uh, it, uh, half the rate of the of the country, and and, uh, and and less than half of the rate of the South. Uh, if you look at the unemployment rate in Kentucky, it certainly hasn't come down as far. Uh, as, uh, as the rest of the country or the South. It's kind of hung out around 4.5% while, well, as I mentioned, the country's down to 35 If you look at the real wage for blue-collar manufacturing workers, uh, it's, it's not been going up. It was $22 an hour. Now it's $21 an hour. So uh, that's uh, for all the stories about great wage growth in the country right now. It's certainly not being felt, at least on average, by... Uh, uh, Um, factory workers, uh, blue collar factory workers here. So I kept pushing, what's going on here? What's going on here? And uh, Jason emphasized the rural uh, metro split, and that's what you see in the last slide there. And I think that's really important, and of course, uh, there's a lot of rural in Kentucky. So if you kind of weight those those lines in that last graph by population, you get a sense of what's going on here. I also think it helps point you toward, toward a policy solution. There's a lot of people who need work, and there's a lot of work to be done there. Whether we're talking about land reclamation, whether we're talking about water, whether we're talking about infrastructure, education, health, there's a lot of work that needs to be done there, and there's a lot of people who need work. But it is a massive market failure. The private sector isn't going to put those two together. That's going to take public sector investment, and that's the kind of investment even if it's debt finance from Washington, you can't, find, you know, you, you can't run budget deficit at the state level. Those are the kind of investments that I would like to push for in the, uh, in the next administration. Based on the lessons cited, the economic landscape is improving. I, I think there are economic lessons learned over the last decade that are getting into the mainstream. You know, Jerome Powell, who's the chair of the Federal Reserve, is a Republican, and he gets everything, everything I said about the import if you listen to him, about the importance of low unemployment for people left behind. He's pulling the levers at the Federal Reserve, but he's saying to people, we're gonna keep unemployment rate as low as we can because we don't see the inflationary pressures everybody told us were going to prevail, and it's helping to pull people into the job market. Not enough in rural Kentucky, I grant you, but believe me, even there, you're better off with a four and a half percent unemployment rate than a six and a half percent unemployment rate. But here's the thing, and I said this a little bit earlier, and I'm going to close on this. There are inherent contradictions in this notion that political dysfunction and polarization can eternally prevail. And that that contradiction is fundamentally that you simply cannot run an advanced economy in a global uh, marketplace, in a uh, a globally connected world, um, uh, without functional governments. This dysfunction at some point implodes. Now, that implosion might be a coming together of people like those in this room and those whom we represent. The message I want to leave you with is that dysfunction and polarization cannot go on forever. At some point, the dam breaks. And when it's there, I want us all to be ready to, do, to take the ball and run with it, to do what we need to do, to implement our agenda, and I can guarantee you that I'll be there with you every step of the way to help. Thank you.
1: That was Jared Bernstein from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities speaking at the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy's 2020 conference. The report, What Does Kentucky Value? A Preview of the 2020 through 2022 Budget of the Commonwealth is available at the KSEP website. That site is kypolicy.org. The report includes many of the graphs referred to in the presentations. We welcome differing opinions, and if you would like to comment on this or other shows in our series, please email. Making Connections News at Appleshop.org. Our stories are available on most podcast platforms and our website, MakingConnectionsNews.org. This is your host, Mimi Pickering. You've been listening to Making Connections News on WMMT.
0: Thank you. Making Connections is brought to you by WMMT, Mountain Community Radio. Find out more at makingconnectionsnews.org.